So here's the deal. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we got to some really deep water during our last session. Uh, It got really heavy. We talked about death in the book of Ecclesiastes as if the book of Ecclesiastes is not depressing enough alone. We talked about death and today we get to continue with another heavy topic. We're talking about injustice. And I'll just admit two conflicting things in my heart. Um, Part of me wants to take a break from Ecclesiastes after this week and just show a lot of cat memes for the next three weeks, right? Like, like I just feel like we need a break, man. Like if, if I could justify theologically just showing us morons doing things on Instagram, I would do that. Because I get, man, I get that you're like showing up and we're talking about some of the hardest topics and the hardest verses in the whole Bible. And I feel that. But at the very same time, I also feel the reality and the weight of what it is to be a pastor. And the job of a pastor is not to tell you what you want to hear. The job of a pastor is not to hype you up. It's not to be an entertainer. It's not to be a celebrity. In a lot of ways, what the job of a pastor really is, is to love you and serve you by helping you prepare for the dark days. So that when the dark days do come, because everybody's going to face them, and I'm not talking about the end of the world, although, yeah, maybe that too, but like, I'm just talking about the dark days of being a human. So that on the dark days, the days of the bad diagnosis, the days when you're facing your impending death, the days where the dreams that you had break up, the days where the things that you were going after because you thought the good life was there come crashing down on top of you and you feel the weight of it. The job of a pastor is not to hype you up or to do a really great service that's entertaining. The job of a pastor is to help you know Jesus so deeply and thoroughly that on the dark days, your very existence and your core isn't shaken so that your faith is rooted and grounded so that you have substance so that you know who Christ is when times of suffering and trial and persecution come so that you actually have a keel in the water when the storms of life hit you so that you don't turn over and drown and capsize and lose your faith. So on on one hand, like I feel it's really heavy. Death was the last time we talked. Today we're talking about injustice. I get that. That's hard. That's heavy. But I also, I also feel the invitation from the Spirit of God throughout Scripture to talk about things that are hard and difficult and weighty because life is hard and difficult and weighty, is it not? And because life is difficult, hard, and weighty, Scripture doesn't give you platitudes and saccharine, cutesy, wootsy, hallmark junk doesn't do that. Scripture points you to ultimate reality, and that's why Ecclesiastes isn't in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is in the Bible so that you know in the midst of a life full of options and obstacles to trying to find a meaningful and a happy life, options and obstacles, that the one true reality is the glory of Jesus Christ, and what you need more than anything else is to love him and know him and follow him. So with that in mind, uh, unapologetically, we're going to turn to some hard passages today. We're going to talk about injustice. And here's my hope. My hope is that the same thing that happened when we talk about death would happen when we talk about injustice. This would not end with despair because after all, like Ecclesiastes is not in the Bible as a manual to become a nihilist or an agnostic. Ecclesiastes is in the Bible because God, the Holy Spirit, inspired it to drive you and point you with your really big, really deep questions to not settle for any answer that isn't the glory of God in Christ Jesus as the deepest answer. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about injustice today. And here's what's crazy. Uh, If we could just be honest, if we could be sober about the world that we live in, 
that does have beautiful things and it does have pleasures and delights and great days, but it also, it also has devastation and disaster if you'll take an honest look at it. Since we started this liturgy today and we opened up with our call to worship in one of our congregations and since we started talking about and singing the gospel and praying the gospel, here's what's been happening around the world. Around the world, little babies have died because moms and dads didn't have access to the kind of treatment that we can go to CVS and buy. That's happening right now. There's babies all over the world dying over things like diarrhea. When we in the U.S., we can walk into any Walmart, any CVS, any Walgreens and buy an over-the-counter medicine that would save that child's life. There are mothers grieving right now because their babies died of diseases that were preventable and curable. Since we started our liturgy all over the world, there are political officials who were elected to office not to line their pockets or to abuse their authority, yet all over the world in every country, the developing and the developed in the, the developing world and in the developed world, there are politicians that instead of being civil servants that work for the thriving and flourishing of their people, they're in their positions of authority to try to line their pockets, acquire power, and take bribes and abuse their authority. It's happening all over the place. Since we started our liturgy. People have been discriminated against based on race. People have been discriminated against based on, uh, based on their ethnic standing in their culture. Since we started this liturgy all over the globe, and the stats on this are sobering and breathtaking, all over the globe, women are the target of focused domestic violence and abuse. Since we started our liturgy, little girls like my little girl all over the world have been tricked, coerced, and kidnapped into the sex trafficking industry. That's happening right now. It's happening as we speak. Right now, all over the world, there are people being killed for their faith. We got to celebrate the Lord's Day together in our four congregations in relative ease and safety, there are places all over the world that together together with other Christians means that you might be the target of a terrorist attack. And as we started our worship gathering today, all over the world, all over the world, people that are trying hard, that care about the same things you care about, that have the same hopes and dreams that you have are having their hopes and dreams dashed by corrupt systems and policies and by people that think that might makes right. We live in a world where often the strong feel that they have permission to gobble up the weak. Do we not? We do. We live in a world where people think that because they can protect their own advantage and privilege, that they therefore have the right to do so at the expense of other people's flourishing. That's the world that we live in. We live in the world where many men believe because they're physically stronger than the women in their lives that they're allowed to be bullies and tyrants and dictators. We live in a world where often corporations and companies, instead of working for the thriving and flourishing of their community and their employees and the world that God has trusted us to care for, instead cut every corner that they can cut to just add to the bottom line no matter what it costs anybody. In short, we live in a world that is really messed up. 
And if you've taken an honest look at it, if you haven't just flipped the channels, if you haven't sort of put your head in the sand in a way that only really modern people have been able to do since the beginning of time, if you take a real honest assessment of the world in which we live, here's what you find. Things have gone terribly wrong all over the place. Things are not what they should be. And one of the tragedies in this cultural moment is that people can sort of have intellectual agreement that the world is full of injustice. And instead of actually feeling the weight of it that we're invited to feel in Ecclesiastes, they instead just turn it into a social media rant that they can be done with. Or maybe, maybe even worst of all, we can see the injustice of the world and instead of feeling the weight of it that drives us to asking the deeper, bigger, more important questions, we simply turn that into a way to alleviate boredom over Chardonnay or IPAs as we talk to our buddies. What Ecclesiastes does is it actually, it actually highlights in a really brutally honest way the injustices all over this planet that serve as massive obstacles to living a deep and beautiful life. And I think when these obstacles get surfaced in a firsthand way, I'm not talking about like, oh yeah, I heard a news report of people way over there that I don't know, that I don't care about, that I don't really feel any connection with. I'm talking about the kind of injustice that you personally get to feel, experience, taste, and see. When that hits you, there's a few conclusions that people tend to make because this world is so broken. Conclusion one is that there is no God. If we live in a world of such savagery where people seem to act like animals and we've been trained that we're simply evolved primates that have instincts that are rooted and grounded in nothing more than survival of the fittest, it shouldn't surprise us that the world is so jacked up. So many people intellectualize the injustice of the world and they simply say, well, human beings are doing what human beings do because after all, we're just monkeys and it's hard to tell monkeys to be kind to each other. This is why... um, the punk band, The Dead Kennedys. If you were waiting for me to ever quote The Dead Kennedys on a Sunday, it's happening now. The punk band, The Dead Kennedys, in a tongue-in-cheek way, wrote their song, Kill the Poor. Here's what they sang. The sun beams down on a brand new day. No more welfare tax to pay. Unsightly slums go up in a flash. Jobless millions whisked away. At least we have more room to play. All systems go to kill the poor tonight. And yeah, it's a protest band and they have some terrible songs, but what's the point that they're making? Well, it's like, yeah, if we're just animals, why not? Why not live like that? Why not justify the weak oppressing or the strong oppressing the weak as just simply the outworkings of Darwinian evolution? Many people think so. Uh, the second collision conclusion that people arrive at because of injustice is similar, but it's also different. And that's what I hear often from my friends. It's basically this. There is no God and I hate him. There is no God and I hate him. And and here's what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. Um, I don't know how to reconcile you telling me that there's an all good God and an all powerful God. And at the very same time, the people that were supposed to protect me and care for me have hurt me and abused me and abandoned me and neglected me. My whole track record, my whole history is that God seeming to either be not good and really powerful or not powerful and good because he hasn't come through for me in the pinches that I've been in. So there is no God and I, and I hate his guts. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. Or perhaps the conclusion is this, there is a God 
but he functionally doesn't matter for life under the sun. He is a God, and maybe because of intelligent design that the whole universe screams out about, I can't get around the fact that there's a creator. I can't look at human history and see um, the beauty, the beauty of what it is to have a mother loving her child and arrive at the conclusion that we're just evolved primates. I, I look at human conscience and it testifies to God. I see science and it testifies to God. And yet, and yet, this world is so jacked up and broken. Maybe there was a creator that started this whole deal and got bored with it and said, good luck, guys. Al Pacino in The Devil's Advocate, which was one of um, Keanu Reeves' finest roles. It's a very short list. It's like that and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Al Pacino, who played the devil in The Devil's Advocate, has this monologue that goes like this. Here's what he said. Let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift. And then what does he do? I swear for his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel, he sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Isn't that the conclusion of millions of people on planet earth? It's like, hey man, maybe there is a God, maybe there's a creator, but you know what? He's an absentee landlord. His existence, his sovereignty, his supposed goodness has no bearing on the fact that genocide happens on planet earth that rape and murder happens on planet earth, that people oppress and take and steal what's not theirs to take every single day on planet earth. Is there is a God, he obviously doesn't care, or maybe he's moved to a better neighborhood because this world is full of tragedy. So with that in mind, Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to be afraid of looking at injustice. It doesn't want us to be cowardly about an accurate assessment of the world. It doesn't want you to put your head in the sand and build out religious platitudes that don't really account for the reality of the world that we live in. Faith does not equal fantasy. Faith does not equal fantasy. Faith does not equal wishful thinking. Faith is something altogether different. And so the writer, the teacher, this person in Ecclesiastes who's conducting this good life experiment, he wants to lay his cards on the table and he wants you to actually look at and feel just how jacked up the world that we live in is. So let me read you a few verses. Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Here's what he's saying. I've done the experiment. I've observed. I've looked at the data. I've explored. I've looked for justice in the world. I've looked for righteousness in the world. And here's what I find pervasively. Instead of justice, I find evil. Instead of righteousness, wickedness. Might makes right. People in power gobble up those that don't have power. And the human instinct to take at any cost, you see it everywhere you look. He goes on in Ecclesiastes 4, starting in verse 1. He says this, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, all the oppressions, and behold, the tears of the oppressed 
and they had no one to comfort them, no champion, no rescuer. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Now listen to this. And I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is really scandalous. Here's what he's saying. I looked at the world and all the oppression and the tears of the oppressed, the tears of the abused, the tears of the rejected, the tears of the slaughtered, I saw no one to comfort them. And here's this conclusion. If this is all there is under the sun, you know what? The dead are better off than the living and better off even than the dead are people that have never been born. That is not Hallmark sentimentality about injustice. In Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9, he says this, and this is one of the most difficult to interpret parts of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew is super weird. It's really controversial. There's all kinds of interpretations, but I'm gonna include it nonetheless because I think it's pertinent. Here's what he says. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Now, some people, they're maybe a bit more positively wired than others. They, they read that passage and here's how they interpret it. Don't be, a, don't be surprised by oppression in the world, but here's the good news. Officials are always overseen by a higher official. So the buck stops somewhere and eventually, eventually there's gonna be accountability for all the systemic injustice in the world. Now, I don't think that that's what he's saying in this context. In fact, I think he's saying the opposite. He's saying, don't be shocked when you see the oppression of the poor, when you see the subjugation of the weak to the strong. Don't let that shock you because actually even inherent in human systems is this food chain where the fish at the top of the food chain gobbles up the next fish who gobbles up the next fish, who gobbles up the next fish, who gobbles up the next fish, all the way down till you get to the bottom. Don't be surprised at wickedness in the world. It's everywhere. And then Ecclesiastes 9, look at this, starting in verse 11. And again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. Now stop here for just a second. Um, can, can we just admit, I mean, we should be patriotic. I love our nation. It's a blessing to be in America. Every time I travel overseas for church planning, I want to kiss the ground when I land. Like, I love this country. I'm glad I get to raise my kids in this country. Yet nonetheless, there are some American myths that the Bible wants to expose as completely false. This is the exposure of an American myth. Here's what he says. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Here's what he's saying. Hey, don't think that just because you work harder than other people, don't think that just because you might be smarter than other people, don't think that just because you might be stronger than other people, that you have any guarantees of carving out a really comfortable existence because time and chance happen to everybody. And here's the reality of what it means to be human, you don't know when the time of the evil net's coming, but it comes for people. 
I went to a lot of different Oklahoma City high schools, which is a sermon for a different day. Uh, but one of the Oklahoma City high schools that I went to, which was a long time ago, 1997, I was there. Um, that high school, man, which was one of the poorest, the most economically disadvantaged in the whole state. When I went to that high school, it was crazy to meet so many students that were brilliant, that were creative, athletes that if they were at a suburban school would have gone division one, full ride scholarship all the way. It was fascinating to meet so many students with so much intellect, so much strength, so much raw capacity who were in a system where, where they literally had no options, no educational future, no open doors. That's the reality that Solomon's pointing out or this Solomon-like character. He's saying, hey, look, man, don't buy into the myth that just because you're comparing yourself to somebody else and you seem to have a few more credits than they seem to have, don't think that it's always gonna work out for you. The race isn't always to the swift. Stuff happens. Injustice takes place on planet Earth all the time. Now let's stop here for a second and let's just feel this. This is in the Bible. This is in the Bible for a reason. This is in the Bible because God doesn't want you to be shocked at the state of humanity. This is in the Bible because faith is not, it's not fantasy. It's not delusion. In fact, becoming disillusioned is one of the first steps to attaining wisdom, biblically speaking. It's actually arriving at reality. And this wise teacher of Israel, here's what he's saying. If you really look at injustice globally, and you really smell it and you really taste it, it forces you to ask some really big questions that demand a really big ultimate answer. You can ignore injustice, you can downplay it, you can try to avoid it. And if you do that, you can just ask the little questions for quite a while. But when injustice hits you in the face, when you are the victim of racism, when you are the victim of oppression, when you are the victim of doing everything you could to make it and getting caught in the snare of an evil net, when you have dreams that crash in around you, when you experience everything that should have happened not happening, when you taste it, your soul is gonna need some answers. Now, here's what's so beautiful about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes gives us a few of the answers here and there. He's really honest that ultimately fear God, God's gonna bring judgment ultimately, but he's also a bit agnostic feeling. He feels a little bit questioning. He's full of doubt. He's wrestling with, can I really trust God? Ultimately, yeah, I gotta fear God and ultimately he's gonna judge and all of our deeds are gonna be weighed and we should try to do what's right. But you also get this sense that he's like, hey man, is this all there is? And that leads us to the answer to injustice that God is preparing for throughout the entirety of scripture. God is not a God of injustice. He's a God that hates injustice, opposes injustice. And ultimately, Jesus, the son of God, is God's last and best word to the injustice that we in our sin have given birth to. So where do I want to land today? Well, I want to land on Jesus. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about how the only route to sanity in a world that's so messed up is the answer provided in the wisdom and beauty of Christ. I want to show you three things about Jesus and injustice. Three things. I want to start with the oppression of Jesus. The oppression of Jesus. 
Because if for you, you think of God as kind of a Greek deity who remains above the fray, and he's not really that moved by human suffering and human injustice. And in fact, he kind of he gets off on it a little bit. He likes toying with human beings. He likes sovereignly orchestrating all kinds of disasters and sitting back in the safety of his ivory palace in heaven, chuckling about it. If that's your view of God, then you've missed the beauty and the scandal of Jesus Christ coming to bear oppression. See, every kind of oppression that human beings can imagine, relational, economic, racial, social, judicial, every form of oppression that you can come up with, Jesus Christ in his earthly life tasted it fully to actually, to actually drink the cup of injustice that we've been mixing together with our crimes against God since the beginning of humanity. Let let me just tell you a few ways. Um, Jesus was born under tyranny. He was born under tyranny. He was a Jewish man living in occupied territory that was staffed by Romans that hated Jews ethnically and saw Jews as a threat to the peace of the Roman Empire. He lived in a day and age where there were rulers like King Herod that cared nothing for justice. They only cared for power. What happened shortly after Jesus was born fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament? Well, Herod had those prophecies too. And he knew that a king was going to be born in Bethlehem. And his response to that wasn't worship. It was trying to commit genocide. What does he do? Well, he slaughters all the male babies from age two down in the town of Bethlehem and in the surrounding region. Why does he do that? Because it was a time of unbelievable, unbelievable blasphemous tyranny that Jesus was born into, that he suffered under. Jesus suffered the injustice of poverty. So income inequality, um, which I personally don't think is primarily a political problem to solve. It's a soul problem that Jesus needs to solve. But, but economic inequality, the gap between the very rich and the very poor, the difference between knowing that you're going to have enough food to eat and some kind of medical care and retirement, the gap today is really wide. The gap in Jesus's day was every bit as wide. And Jesus was born to a peasant woman named Mary. He was born in abject poverty. Eventually he gets this um, he gets this crazy, he gets this crazy evacuation plan fleshed out through a dream to go down to Egypt to avoid persecution under Herod. He becomes a refugee. Jesus is adopted daddy, a guy named Joseph. He was a poor blue collar worker. And at some point, Joseph most likely dies. He just disappears from the story of Jesus, leaving Mary a single mom in a culture that had no safety net beyond immediate family to care for her needs. You want to know what poverty is? Jesus knew. And what's crazy is Jesus in his earthly ministry, he could have made a ton of money preaching and teaching and leading. But instead of pursuing money and comfort, he tells people repeatedly, hey, you know what? Foxes have their holes, but I have no home. He experienced the injustice of poverty. He experienced the injustice of betrayal. His closest friends, like, and can we just admit that that really is an injustice, if you've invested relationship and time and love with a person, and you think they care about you, and then you find out that they've just been manipulating you and they're not really who you thought they were. If you've been betrayed and you felt the sting of that, just know Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends. His buddy Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. 
Even his own mom, you would think that the virgin birth would be like, hey, I'm not gonna forget that. I'll just do what you tell me to do. Even Jesus's own mom at one point thinks that Jesus has lost it. His nation doesn't get him. His friends deny even knowing him. And this leads to this moment where Jesus experiences judicial corruption that makes your toes curl. Jesus is the victim of a mock trial that's literally a trial by night. And the officials that are supposed to be executing justice in the name of God, instead of executing justice, here's what they're doing. They're rigging the system against Jesus by paying false witnesses to bear testimony against him. They're violating the law. Then they turn him over to this pilot character that doesn't care about truth, who simply wants to get the crowd to shut up who knows that Jesus is innocent, who's even warned by his own wife that she had a dream about the innocence of Jesus. And and Pilate just abdicates all leadership to bring justice. He washes his hands of it. And then ultimately, what's the greatest form of injustice? What's the worst thing that a human being can take from another human being? There's a lot of things that people can take from other humans that are corrupt and unjust, but what's the worst It's standing as if you were God and deciding the time of another human being's death. It's murder. Jesus is a victim of the ultimate injustice of murder. Now, why are we camping out here? Well, we're camping out here for a couple of really big reasons. We're camping out first because does that sound like an absentee landlord to you? Does that sound like a capricious deity that's just sort of toying with human misery? Does that sound like a God that remains aloof and far off from human suffering? The truth is what we see in Jesus is God's posture towards humanity, which is one of mercy and grace. This also reveals to us something really profound about you and me, right? I used to look at the world and how jacked up and broken it is. Um, When I was a little kid, nine years old, I lived in India for a year. I just remember seeing all the street kids and people that were deformed and the levels of poverty and just having my mind blown on a daily basis as a little kid and just thinking, why doesn't God just end all this evil? And the problem is this, the problem is this. Jesus comes in weakness to be oppressed because if he came with a sword to instantly end all justice, to not be, to not be oppressed by it in our place, to pay for our sins, here's the reality If he came with a sword drawn, nobody would stand in the day of the reckoning. Because if you could just bear with me for a minute, this may seem foolish. The caricature that we have for greed is what? It's it's an American this moment for most of you. It's it's like a corporate fat cat with sausage fingers. He's in a boardroom smoking cigars and drinking brown liquor and like making crass jokes and figuring out how to cut corners and pollute the environment. And I get that, like that caricature is certainly out there. But here's the reality. The seed that's in your soul, known as greed, left to grow up and become the mature tree, it would make that corporate fat cat look like a rookie at greed. It just would. The little seed of lust that you and me carry the way we tend to objectify each other, the way that we build virtual harems and the way that we, the way 
in particular, I, I know ladies deal with pornography too, uh, but the way in my experience, men just so often see women just as objects to gratify their sexual desires. That lust is a little seed. You leave that little seed to grow, guess what that seed turns into if it's full-blown? It's sex trafficking. It's rape. The problem with you and me, if we could be so bold, I know this is church, no place to be really honest about ourselves, but we could try it. The problem with you and me is not just that we're frustrated that there's so much injustice in the world and why doesn't God deal with it? Why doesn't he bring an end to it? The problem with you and me is that injustice is not just out there. It's in the human soul. It's in the human heart. And if Jesus in his first coming came with the sword to end all injustice, there isn't one of us left on the other side of that reckoning. So what does he do? He does something scandalous. He comes in mercy to actually drink the cup of injustice that our sin's been brewing, to pay the penalty for our injustice, to suffer in our injustice. And the crazy thing about Jesus is that the first coming of Christ was as this lamb led to the slaughter that was silent, to be oppressed, to willingly submit to exploitation, to be abused, to be bound, to be struck, to be betrayed. And that act of extravagant love and mercy leads to an offer of grace for all humanity that's an offer that we would trust in Jesus by grace through faith, not good deeds, not earning it, not religion. And in so trusting in Jesus, we're given a new identity clothed with his righteousness and then slowly but surely, a relationship with him results in the poison being drawn from our souls. Slowly and surely. Until the last day where we see him face to face. And on that last day, when you see him face to face, the day you die or the day he returns, the final bit of poison is drawn from you. And guess what? Injustice is no more inside of you. The finished work of Jesus is complete and you've been glorified looking like Christ. Now, I want to end with this thought because that's the first coming of Jesus and praise be to God for the scandal of that kind of mercy. But there is a second coming of Jesus. And the second coming of Jesus is not something that a lot of people want to talk about in this cultural moment. It's not something we really want to look at because it's something that we feel like is a little embarrassing. The idea of Jesus coming in this great and terrifying day of the Lord in which he sorts the sheep from the goats, in which people cry out, let the mountains follow me and hide me from his face. That day of the Lord, that's a day marked with the return of Jesus to finally and completely wage war on evil, that's something that feels a little archaic and ridiculous to us. And that's primarily because we're Americans that don't live every single day feeling the sting of injustice that, that results in the rape of our wives and our sisters, that results in the genocide of our brothers. See, we're insulated enough from the injustice of the world. And I'm not saying there's not injustice that we've tasted in this room. But you can be an American and be insulated enough from injustice that the idea of a final judgment seems archaic and brutal and silly. But you go talk to somebody 
who lived in a village where all the little girls were kidnapped, had their genitals mutilated. And guess what? The only way to respond with any form of nonviolence in that context is to actually know that there's a day of reckoning in which Jesus, the Christ, the only one who's good enough and pure enough to drop the gavel and make the call on the evil of this world, knowing that he's going to confront evil in all its forms. Matthew 25 unpacks this. Talks about the sheep and the goats and the great day of Jesus's judgment. I want to end with this because talking about judgment just feels so crazy to us. And the reason it feels crazy to us is because we don't know how to reconcile the love of Christ and the judgment of Christ. We think that his love and his judgment are incompatible attributes of Jesus. For some of us in our church, we have a character, a caricature of loving hippie Jesus. And loving hippie Jesus, he stands in heaven and he's got this big bag of tolerance dust, right? And, and what he does, what he does, because of course, if you're really a loving God, you're going to have your tolerance dust. What he does with this tolerance dust is he looks at all the evils and all the injustices of the world and he just grabs a handful and he just sprinkles it down every now and then. Oh, sure. You want to beat your wife, bully your kids. <sighs> I'm Jesus. Pfft. It's cool. Hey, okay, you want to build a whole culture on the backs of slaves and objectify and belittle people, they're image bearers of God. Hey, tolerance dust. It's cool. Hey, you want to worship money and belittle God and belittle relationships? Hey, you know what? (laughs) I'm Jesus. Who am I to judge? And then some of us have the other caricature coming out of fundamentalist circles. They don't really like hippie Jesus. So they have like super angry, aggressive, want to kill everybody, Jesus. And he's got his sword drawn. And he's just hoping that you screw up enough for him to run you through and wet his sword and bring justice. And the problem is often the character of judgment, Jesus. He always judges other people's sins, never yours. <laughs> Have you noticed that? He's coming to get the homosexuals. He's coming to get the liberals. He's kind of cool though with religious hypocrisy. Thank God. (laughs) My point in saying this is that both of those, both of those are intellectually dishonest, biblically illiterate, caricatures of who Jesus is. And what you don't have the right to do is to build Jesus in your own image. You can love him, follow him, submit to him and worship him, or you can reject him, but you can't bolt to him all the attributes that you think he should have and make your Franken Jesus in your own image. Because it's just not reality. And what we see in scripture is this, and this is really liberating for a world that's so full of evil. Here's what we find in scripture the love of Jesus and the justice of Jesus are not irreconcilable attributes of him. 
His justice flows out of his love. He is so committed to human flourishing. He's so committed to redeeming humanity and having a new heavens and a new earth that are beautiful without racism, without greed, without objectification, without idolatry, without all the things that have destroyed this world. He's so committed to that that he's willing to actually fight for it and confront evil to achieve it. And the offer of the grace of God in the gospel is to say, hey, you know what? Injustice is not just out there. It's in me, but Jesus paid for it. And I want to trust him and I want him to get this poison out of me. But he is coming and he will confront every injustice on this planet. He will reckon with it. I know that there's different political views in our church. It's one of the things I love about our church. But it's difficult for me to understand arguing that if a murderer broke into my house and wanted to rape and kill my family and burn my home down, that the loving thing to do would be to sit back and watch him plunge my entire home into chaos. I think most of us would say, hey, the loving thing to do would be to stop that evil with any means necessary for your children, for the protection of your home, to keep chaos at bay. Oh, Jesus loves his creation. He loves humanity. He wants the new heavens and the new earth to not have the little seeds of greed that grow into the kind of objectification and wickedness that leads to war. He wants a new heavens and a new earth where the seed of lust doesn't grow into sex trafficking. He wants a new heaven and a new earth where that seed of idolatry doesn't lead to a vain, fruitless pursuit of trying to find the good life and stuff, not the creator. And he's so committed to that that he's actually willing to fight for it. And when he fights for something, it's not like yin and yang, good versus evil, dualistic nonsense. When Jesus fights for it, he wins. And as I close this today, here's the truth. Why doesn't he bring this second coming, this reckoning, this justice today? Well, in, in some measure, he does it pretty frequently today. There's a lot of times he exposes and deals with injustice today. And the reason he doesn't bring that ultimate day of the Lord where he returns, the scripture says, the reason it hasn't happened yet is he's patient and he's merciful, wishing that none should perish. So he's biding his time. And he's calling his church to oppose injustice and to offer everybody the free offer of transformation by trusting in Christ and saying, hey, you know what? Injustice ain't just out there. Injustice is here. Injustice is here. Injustice is in here. And what we need is the finished work of Jesus to atone for it. And we need the grace of God and the work of the spirit to draw that poison out of us until he finishes what he started and we can be a part of a new heavens and a new earth that's not like this place.